This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. Our scripture, our second scripture this evening comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to go there at this time. We also have Bibles right there in your pews. They're the little blue um, books right in front of you. If you'd like to get one out, you're free to do so. It's on New Testament page 3. New Testament page 3 of your pew Bible as well. So that's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And as you take a minute to find it, we'll have it on the screens as well. I'm going to set up um, our conversation for today. So we're in the midst of this series, Holy in All Manner of Conversation. And that's rather wordy, um, but don't blame me, blame Peter. Um, go and read um, 1 Peter, and you will see in 1 Peter 1.15, in the King James Version, um, you will see this phrase, as he is God who has called you is holy, so you should be holy in all manner of conversation. Other translations um, change that. The essence of that word conversation is not just how we speak to one another, but it's really our entire manner of being. Um, so it would, like other translations say, be holy in all manner of conduct. Um, I have thought to myself, just be holy in all manner, right? We should be people who pursue holiness, who seek holiness. Um, but one of the places where it seems, especially today and especially in our culture and in our society, where we struggle to reflect the heart of God to the world, not just as Christians but as people in general, is in how we speak to one another. We really struggle to speak to one another well, to listen to one another well. It doesn't matter if this is in you know, just our personal relationships or even on a more a global scale or through any medium, whether it's face-to-face conversation or even something like social media, um, it seems that we are quicker to judge and to be harsh and to speak than we are to listen and to be loving and to reflect a God that loves us and that calls us to love others. So we wanted to preach this series about being holy in our conversations. And um, one of the resources that we're using is a book, um, not written for the church or to the church, but one that I think is deeply based in biblical principles that we see all throughout Scripture, is Crucial Conversations. Um, Perhaps you've heard of that book before, maybe you haven't. It's one that many of our pastors use in in, um, different areas. Um, But we have been using this book to kind of shape our imagination as we walk through the scriptures. And one of the things the book does that is helpful is it defines what a crucial conversation is, because not all conversations are crucial. And here is what it says. It says that a crucial conversation is defined in this way, a conversation where the stakes are high, emotions are strong, and opinions vary. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I have a crucial conversation every night with my daughter. She's four years old. Okay, subject? bedtime. Stakes, very high. How much sleep am I going to get? How much sleep is she going to get? Emotions are incredibly strong. She's throwing a tantrum. I might throw a tantrum. Opinions also vary greatly. I think 7.30 to 8 o'clock is an acceptable time for a four-year-old to go to bed. She disagrees vehemently. But even in that situation, for how cute and adorable and maddening it is, 
Um, part of the reality is that, that whether there is a conversation that is crucial that we're having at that level, or one perhaps that we're having you know, at a more serious level, there are ways to go about having these conversations well and that help us to reflect the heart of God and reflect the holiness of God to the people we are in the conversation with and to those around us. Our global Methodist denomination is in the midst of a crucial conversation. Even right now as I speak, we've been talking over the last um, really few years about this lead up to this special general conference that's happening this weekend in St. Louis um, in regards to the conversation around human sexuality and how our denomination, where our denomination stands, what we, what we believe, what, it, what is theological about, you know, all of the stuff within our Methodist Book of Discipline and polity and how, you know, will any of that change, will it not change? And it's a critical moment um, in the life of our denomination, but it's one that's happening way up here. And one of the things that has been my prayer is that really regardless of what happens, and I am invested in what happens, but regardless of what happens, um, that, that somehow our church reflect to the world what it looks like to be holy in conversation. And if we can't do anything about that at that level, um, what does it look like for us here today? And so that, that is the conversation that we're in. This morning, uh, at this whole series, we're looking at crucial conversations in Scripture, and this morning is, uh, this morning, this evening, this evening is no different. Um, we are looking at a conversation between Jesus and the devil. Da, da, da. Jesus and the devil, good and evil, right here in Matthew chapter 4. I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple saying to him, if you are the son of God, show yourself, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Since we define these crucial conversations as high stakes, one of the things that's true about them as well is that they are often high stress high stakes and high stress conversations. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is that when we as human beings find ourselves in high stress situations, our bodies actually are actively reacting to those high stress situations. There is something that has happened neuro happening neurologically as well as physiologically 
that is causing your body to act in certain ways. Now, I'm going to give you a quick little science lesson. Any, any of my um, friends in the medical community, if I screw any of this up, I'm really sorry. Um, but this is from one of your books. Okay, um, here's what it says about when the brain perceives a threat. It could be physical, it could be emotional, um, but some, some intense threat. The brain perceives a threat or is in fear for its survival. Um, the part of the nervous system that is called the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and releases adrenaline or epinephrine for my medical friends. Um, the adrenal gland also gets triggered, all right? Hormones are released by the part of the brain that controls body temperature, thirst, hunger, etc. And this thing called cortisol is produced. So basically, everything in the body not necessary for survival and fighting for your life shuts down. Your digestion slows, your blood vessels constrict, except for those in the large muscles, which actually get bigger and dilate. Your hearing lessens, your vision narrows, your heart rate goes up, your mouth gets dry. All of this is important if you are, in fact, fighting for your life. But here's the thing. Acute stress response is meant to be temporary. And the issue is, is that many people, especially nowadays, live in longer, more prolonged seasons of acute stress, where their bodies are actually physically reacting as though they are in some form of danger, not for a moment, but for a long period of time. Here's that what can actually do to your life. Living in a prolonged state of stress has all sorts of psychological and physiological repercussions. Anger, depression, anxiety, chest pain, headaches, insomnia, and even a suppressed immune system. Living in that state can actually make you sick and more susceptible to sickness. Now, um, many of us might know this as what's called the fight or flight mentality. Fight or flight mentality. That's what kicks in when often we perceive that we are in some form of danger or living under some form of acute stress. And that is no different for many of us when we feel we are going into a room or um, getting ready to have a conversation that we feel has some sort of crucial impact possibly on our lives or on lives that, of people we care about. So how the book translates it is not to say fight or flight, but to say silence or violence. And that when we are in the midst of these types of conversations, most if not all of us, especially when we're at our worst, will tend towards one or the other. I'm going to break it down for you a little further. I'm going to ask you just for a moment to be honest with yourself and see if any of these might apply to you. If you're here with a partner or someone you care about, don't look over at them. <clears throat> Let's talk about silence. Silence can look like masking, which consists of understanding or selectively showing our true opinions, so things like sarcasm and sugarcoating. Avoiding, which involves steering completely away from sensitive subjects. We talk, but without addressing the real issues. Withdrawing, 
means pulling out of a conversation altogether. We either exit the conversation or even exit the room. Then there's violence. Controlling, which consists of coercing others to your way of thinking. It's done through either forcing your own views on others or even dominating the conversation. Methods include cutting others off, overstating facts, speaking in absolutes, Lord help me, changing subjects, or using directive questions to control the conversation. There's labeling, which is putting a label on people or ideas so we can dismiss them under a general stereotype or category. And there's attacking, which is when we've moved from winning the argument to actually hurting the person. And this looks like belittling or threatening. I wonder if you really thought about it where you might find yourself on that spectrum. I'll take a moment and just be vulnerable with you so that you know like I'm being honest with myself too. Um, when I'm at my worst, I tend towards violence. I just fill the room with the sound of my own voice. Did I not choose the right job? Hallelujah. <laughs> my daughter does as well. Um, which makes our evening bedtime conversations at times wonderful for my wife. But friends, as we strive to be more self-aware and understand where we are, a part of the issue is that when we find ourselves in the midst of these crucial moments, so often um, we believe that there are one of two choices, fight or flight. Silence or violence, you have to choose one or the other. And what the book, Crucial Conversations, would say is that that's the fool's choice. That there is a third way. And it really begins with what they call safety. Creating a safe space of mutual purpose and respect to be able um, to, to have the person that you are communicating with that you know that you care about them and that you care about listening to them and understanding their purpose and understanding their goals even if the reality is that you disagree with them. This is important. One of the things that I realize I have the great privilege of doing is, you know, as a pastor, I get to stand in front of a bunch of people and talk to them for roughly 20 minutes a week. Sometimes Corey gets mad at me because it's more than that. Um, but for roughly 20 minutes a week in a space just like this where unless they're very bold, um, they don't get to speak back to me. <laughs> I just get to talk. I just get to say whatever I want. And now I, I strive not to take that for granted. But what that means is I have to be really careful about sometimes the things I say. Because it's not like I don't have an opinion about things that might be divisive or controversial or, you know, seen as less scriptural but more, you know, politically charged or current event. It's not like I don't have anything to say about those things. But to say them here in a space where there is no room for conversation doesn't really leave a lot of room for relationship between me and you. And so what my preference often is, is to have those kinds of conversations over a cup of coffee or in my office or meeting you somewhere where we can talk and communicate. 
with one another. If I've ever found myself in a position where I wanted to share something with you that I thought, you know, might be a little bit more in that opinion, my opinion-based arena, I've often said, I hope that you trust that I love you, that I care about you, and if you want to talk with me about this further, I will absolutely make time for you. This is one of the ways that we try to build trust and safety, even in how we speak with one another. If there's too little of that, when we walk into a conversation and we feel like there is room for us to be harmed, um, we will more than likely, almost immediately, fall within whatever one of those spheres um, we gravitate towards, whether it be silence or violence. All that to say that our scripture this evening is a prime example of how one of these conversations happens, how one party chooses to fight and the other party um, chooses the better third option. The first thing we hear about Jesus in this scripture is that he was hungry. He was hungry. The scripture says he had just fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, so he was famished. If you've ever gone into a conversation that was critical, hungry, you will understand just how debilitating that can be to your ability to reason, to understand, to be able to listen well. And so the devil lodges an attack on Jesus. And listen to just some of the things that he does. And, and, and you know, in that spectrum, you know, I really see more of the, the violent aspects of it through, through the devil because we see, we see labeling through the devil. The devil says repeatedly, if you are the son of God, then blah. If you are the son of God, then blah. If you are the son of God, then blah. The devil strives to control, to coerce. Did you catch the fact that the devil quoted scripture to Jesus? That's what the devil does halfway through this in verse um, 6. In verse 6, the devil says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. The devil is quoting prophetic literature that is prophesying to the person of Jesus. He's quoting it to Jesus and saying, This is supposed to speak to you, so go ahead. Throw yourself down. The angels will save you. The devil is actually so bold as to weaponize Scripture itself against the person of Jesus. This is the wrong thing to do, especially with Jesus. You will notice that each of Jesus' response is his own way of quoting Scripture. And I love what Jesus points to in this moment because what the devil is doing is he is attempting to get at the heart of what he believes Jesus desires in the moment. He's hungry, so does he want food, right? Does he want, does he want to be saved? Does he want power? And he gives each temptation, and in each temptation, Jesus was, responds with Scripture, but with Scripture that points to what the ultimate dependence is in. And so the devil says, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, one does not live on bread alone, reflecting a dependence on God, a need to depend on God. The devil says, 
Throw yourself down. The scriptures that attest to you say that you should be able to do this. So throw yourself down and be saved. And Jesus says, do not put your Lord God to the test. So Jesus talks about trusting God. So being dependent on God, trusting God. And ultimately the devil says, if you kneel at my feet, I will give you all of the kingdoms that you can see. And Jesus' response, again, with scripture is, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. It's having a reverence for God. So having a dependence on God, trusting in God, having a reverence and an awe for God are the most critical things in this moment in Jesus' life. This is what's holding him together in this moment. And it's something that's so interesting because what I think Jesus is trying to say is that, you know, the devil is trying to, to use the scripture in some way um, to, to show Jesus, look, you can do all of these things. Why don't you just do them for yourself? And it's one of those things I believe that, that we just assume that as we, you know, as we grow older and more mature and more knowledgeable in whatever thing it is that we're in, whether it's life or our work or whatever, we become more independent of others and able to do for ourselves. So think about it. When you're a child, you are very dependent on your parents, and then eventually you get older, you grow up, you leave the house, and you go create your own life for yourself. But the scriptures completely flip that around in the sense that it is not the goal that as you read the scriptures and get more familiar with the scriptures that you somehow gain an independence from this God that the scriptures reveal. It's backwards. As you read the scriptures more, as you come to have a deeper relationship with God, as you come to understand God more, what you actually find is that as you feel you get more answers to questions, you actually get more questions than answers. You find yourself more dependent on God, more dependent on God's grace, more needing to trust in God, more needing to be desperate for God and for who God is and for God's grace and for mercy in your life. So as the devil is saying to Jesus, hey, look at all these things you can do. Jesus, 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 Son of God, is saying to the devil, apart from God, I can't do anything. My full dependence, my full trust, my full reverence is on God. This is important because it calls us to ask the question, you know, what is leading and guiding us in life? Guiding us in our discernment, in our wisdom, in our love for one another. We talk about silence versus violence, and one of the things that I noticed when I was reading, I, I went to the Crucial Conversation site and read all these posts by people who took the little inventory, and it said that they were more on the violent side of things, and they presented that to their teams. This is taken by many you know, corporate teams, and it was almost like those who were in the silence field almost had this like moral superiority. Like, well, at least I'm not violent. At least I'm not loud and in your face, I just remain silent. But silence can be incredibly dangerous too. The devil uses scripture against Jesus. He uses scripture in a way that Jesus understood was not the intended way to use the scripture and, and Jesus is not silent about it. 
he actually speaks up about it. And as we are in the midst of an incredible conversation in the Methodist Church around our understanding and interpretation of Scripture, it, it causes me to remember moments in the history of the life of the church where Scripture has been used a certain way, and we have had crucial conversations about those things. I could go all the way back to the Bible, right after the church was born, 15 chapters after the church was born in Acts chapter 15, and show you an incredibly crucial conversation where there was a split amongst how people felt they should be evangelizing to people. But just in terms of Methodism itself, there have been three major conversations in life of the Methodist Church. The first one was over slavery. Back in the 1800s, when um, the Methodist Church split geographically, the Methodist Episcopal Church North and the Methodist Episcopal Church South, over the conversation of slavery. And believe it or not, there were people, faith-filled Christians, on both sides of that argument, some who were saying, Scripture does not, like, the practice of slavery does not honor God. And other people who are saying, well, here's what the Bible says. We should absolutely be allowed to have slaves. And it's split down the middle. Now, I would assume that if I stood here behind this pulpit and said to you today that the practice of slavery in no way honors God and moves us toward holiness, I don't think anybody's furious about me for saying that. Had I said that to you 200 years ago, I could have put my own life in jeopardy, the life of the church in jeopardy. People could be like shouting at me right now, walking out the door saying they're never coming back to this church. That was conversation one. Conversation two was over the ordination of women. Now the church didn't split then, but it was a very, very, very close vote and heated debate. Now I have been the beneficiary of incredible women, ordained clergy, who have led me and mentored me and pastored me throughout um, my life in the Methodist Church. And I give God all the thanks in the world for all of them. This church, Apex United Methodist Church, has been blessed with ordained women and clergy who have come and who have loved this church so well, who've pastored this church so well. And so I would assume that if I stood here today and said, that God blesses and encourages and calls women to the ministry of ordained pastoral ministry in the church. I don't think anybody's getting mad at me over that. But if this was 50 years ago, and, and frankly, maybe less, that might cause an uproar. In fact, there are churches I could walk in today and say that exact same thing. And people would probably just leave. Because they believe what the scriptures testify to, that women shouldn't be in leadership. They shouldn't be in pastoral leadership. How do these things change? How do these things move from one interpretation to the other? From one thing to the other? People speak up. People speak up. They choose not to be silent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we actually had a quote from him up. I didn't know that Corey was going to use a Bonhoeffer quote, and I put a Bonhoeffer quote in my sermon, so hallelujah, we're on the same page. 
Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian during World War II. He established an underground seminary. Oh, he put the quote up. Ah, I was going to set it up. It's all good. Um, he uh, underground seminary in Nazi Germany to train pastors up um, in opposition to the message of the Nazi party. He was eventually martyred, killed by the Nazis. This is what he said. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And so again, when faced with the choice of fight or flight, silence or violence, if you're someone who says, well, I'd just rather keep quiet, I would ask you, um, what is it that prompts your voice? What is it that prompts you to speak? Are there places where you've been silent where maybe if you reflect on that decision, your heart might be changed and you might desire to speak in a way that's helpful? I believe there is one place where the church um, has been silent that, that we, need to, we need to speak from, from a place of love and grace and a desire um, to be in relationship with one another. One of the things we talked about last week was how, you know, sometimes we have to decide, do we want to be right or do we want to be in relationship? Do we want to be right or do we want to be in relationship? Yesterday, the General Conference um, spent the whole day in prayer. It was beautiful. We are a global church, so there were people praying in all different languages, people from Africa and Russia and the Philippines and all over the world, you name it, people were there and they were praying in all these different languages and it was, it was just beautiful. One of the most powerful things that happened was the church named something that as we have strived to create a safe space for us to speak to one another about um, a topic of human sexuality that is so hard to speak to at times, one of the most unfortunate consequences of this is that we have essentially made people into a topic of debate. Remember how we talked about labeling? We've essentially made people into a topic of debate. And when you make people into a topic of debate, it is so much easier to speak to the issue rather than the person, but you're still dehumanizing the people. And so the Methodist Church, yesterday in this room filled with all these people who believe many different things, said, we know we have caused harm. We have caused harm for people who identify specifically as LGBTQ, we have caused harm intentionally, we've caused harm unintentionally, and for that we're sorry. The church as a whole body said sorry. And they came around individuals and held hands and they prayed and they sang. And I will tell you, we are an imperfect church and I'm sure there are gonna be moments in this whole thing that look really ugly, but for a minute I saw the inbreaking of God's kingdom in that place. And I was thankful. It's one of the most unfortunate realities that we often forget the people and the names, the mothers, the fathers, the sons, the daughters, the brothers, the sisters, aunts, uncles, close friends, you name it, 
who identify as LGBTQ and who feel as though their own humanity is up for debate. That breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. And one of the things that I wanted to share, because I know that there are people in our church right here, Apex United Methodist Church, who identify that way, who have found a home here, who have, who have found a place to serve alongside others here. You know, I, I wanted to say as one of the pastors, very unequivocally, that no person can vote on who God loves. There is no machine that can tally someone's worth in the eyes of God. All people are created in the image of God. All people are loved by God. All people have a sacred worth placed upon their life by God. And so for those who identify in that way, I think it's important for me as a pastor to say, I love you. I love you. God surely loves you. This church loves you. And as long as we are a church that is bold enough and crazy enough to put welcome all, love all, serve all on everything that we put out and brand, I pray that that is our reality. I pray that we live into that, even when it's hard to live into that. I pray we can continue to be a place that creates space for people who believe differently, who think differently, to sit alongside one another and to say, I might not fully understand, I might not fully get it, but one thing that is clear is that God loves you. And if God loves you, and if God considers you worthy, and if God considers you sacred, then what on earth is stopping me from doing so? Can that not be the question that drives us right now in this moment? What on earth is stopping us from doing? If God can do so, what stops us from doing so?